turn now in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. We'll be looking at Daniel chapter 5 today. Uh, Before we get there, I just want to make a quick uh, note, a quick announcement. Uh, One of the things that we value here at Redeeming Grace is families. Um, We value everyone, whether you're young, old, no matter your ethnicity, we, we, we value uh, every person at every age of every background, um, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you have children or whether you don't have children. But there are certain needs that come along our way every now and then, and we want to make sure that those needs are being met. And one of the blessings that we have is a growing and expanding nursery. And you're like, ah, I see what's coming next. Exactly. Uh, right now, we currently have need for about three workers in our children's church ministry and about eight workers in our nursery ministry. Uh, those needs, uh, those requirements for that need is um, you serve once every six weeks on a rotational basis. And so if you could serve in one of those capacities, I know that that would really bless many of the folks in this room. It would encourage our children's ministry greatly. It would encourage a pastor significantly, uh, and all will be well uh, if you could consider serving in that capacity. And so we would invite you to do that uh, if you could serve. Uh, again, it's pretty uh, low-key, except for the week you're serving, then it's pretty high, high-key. But uh, every six weeks, it'll be crazy, and then all the other five weeks, pretty normal, okay? Erin uh, Mangan, raise your hand. She's our children's ministry director. If you can serve in any one of those areas, we have an immediate significant needs in that ministry. See her, and that would be fantastic. Daniel chapter five, let's pray and we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for this time that we have in your word. Would you instruct us by your spirit? We ask in Christ's name, amen. Have you ever heard someone say to you, just trust me? What do you think when you hear that? Just trust me. My immediate response is what depends on who's saying that. Right? Maybe, maybe you've heard that before in the workplace or maybe in friendship or um, in the home. Just trust me. Certainly, if you're a parent, you know that phrase quite well because you've likely spoken it to your children when you're trying to explain something and they don't understand. Well, just trust me. That phrase, just trust me, is a phrase that needs a context, doesn't it? It matters who says it. Because depending on who says it will inform whether or not you're really going to trust them, right? If they have a track record that's, that's not very trustworthy, you're going to find it very difficult to trust them, aren't you? However, if they have a track record that's faithful and consistent, you will find yourself saying, I don't understand what's going on. I'm not sure of of what direction to take in this particular instance, but I am going to take you at your word and trust you. One way that you could think about the book of Daniel is that the book of Daniel is a just trust me statement from God. Israel finds themselves in exile under the rule of a pagan king. Unsure, uncertain, even though they've had the prophets, they didn't listen to them before, and I'm sure they didn't hear the fact that they were gonna get to go back to the land. Just uncertain of what's going to happen next. And it's as if the book of Daniel was inspired by the Holy Spirit to say to his people, trust me. Regardless of the circumstances that you find yourselves in, regardless of what it seems to be and what it seems to feel like and what 
what things are going on right now in your life. Trust me. The book of Daniel could be described that way, but I would even say Daniel chapter five is another specific instance of a just trust me statement from God to his people. As we begin chapter five, we begin with a party. It's a party being thrown by a new king. So from Daniel chapter four to Daniel chapter five, we've jumped about 15 to 20 years. This time we find this this new king on the scene, Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar had been the previous person in chapter four. We've been dealing with Nebuchadnezzar since chapter one, but now in chapter five, there's this new king all of a sudden. And it's quite a strange account because there's really no introduction to him. There's no background given. Here he is throwing a party of Hollywood proportions. And by the end of the night, he's killed. And the kingdom is given over to the Medes. One of the best practices that you could ever develop in reading the Bible and studying it, especially in context like this is certainly in any part of the Bible, but when you're trying to figure out historically what's going on, one of the best practices you could develop is to first ask the question, what would have been the purpose for God to inspire Daniel to record this for his original audience? What would the original recipients of these words have heard? One of the things that we like to do is immediately jump in in 2017 and begin to apply the text to our immediate circumstances without any kind of historical context. That's dangerous, if not bad. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't just immediately start applying verses without understanding the historical and theological context. You'll get in trouble very quickly when you do that. So when we begin to ask, what would have God's people, remember God's people are in exile under pagan rule, under uh, under this regime of of kings who are are not godly. Nebuchadnezzar kind of had some kind of conversion, not sure exactly what what happened eternally with him. It seems that he may have uh, had some level of faith there at the end, certainly with his humility. But by and large, these were not... uh, friendly kings towards the true and living God. So what would they have heard? Well, they would have heard in the midst of all of this is the fact that God is supreme. God is sovereign over all nations. And regardless of what you may be going through, especially in their shoes, sandals, whatever they wore, especially in their context, as they're being oppressed and being held captive by this foreign king, God would have been encouraging them to trust in him as they go throughout this exile, knowing that he has the power to raise up kings and bring them down. So if we were to simply say, what's the purpose of Daniel? Well, we've said it in the weeks past. We'll say it again in Daniel chapter five. God is sovereign and we must trust him. We're gonna look at four observations this morning, Lord willing, from Daniel five that both warn and encourage us warn and encourage us in light of God's rule, in, God is, in light of God's promise that we should trust him. Number one, let's consider four observations. So this is the first observation that both warn and encourage. We're gonna kind of begin with a warning here. What we see in 
Daniel chapter five is an unbridled defiance. Let's look at verses one through four. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, wives and concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So here at this party, we've fast-forwarded about 15, 20 years now. Bill Shazer is the king, or at least he's the regent king. He's, he's kind of the king on hand. There's actually another king that's likely ruling, but he's taking a break in Egypt right now. And so it's likely Belshazzar that's kind of in place of him, his son, that's kind of doing, calling the shots here in, in Babylon. And this is what he's doing. He's throwing this massive party. And during the party, likely after he had had a little too much wine, he asked for the gold vessels, the cups and the vessels that were taken. Remember, originally out of the temple in Jerusalem, when Nebuchadnezzar went down to Jerusalem and began to bring the people out of Jerusalem into captivity, one of the things that he did is he ransacked the temple and took some of the vessels out of the temple and took them to Babylon. Now, now Belshazzar is throwing this massive party. He says, by the way, why don't you just bring those cups and vessels that we took from the temple years ago? Let's bring them to the party and let's use them to drink out of. The red Solo cups weren't cutting it. So that's what they do. But if drinking from these holy cups and vessels during the party weren't bad enough, he goes on to give a toast to his own gods as they drink. This is quite an act of defiance. One of the things that we see in Belshazzar's defiance is we see actually several snapshots of his defiance. One of the things that we see, first of all, is the fact that he mocks the honor of God. He mocks God. And right here, you see him doing that. He's throwing this party without any kind of reverence or recognition to the true God. In fact, he asks for the vessels to be brought, uses them to drink it up, and toasts the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This is a mockery of unprecedented proportion. He is making quite the statement, openly mocking God while praising these false gods. Absolutely no regard for God whatsoever and openly displaying pride and arrogance. And we know that this is not the only time that such a blatant mockery has happened. Historically, we can consider 167 BC, Antiochus IV came to the temple in Jerusalem and set up an altar to Zeus. Quite, quite a mockery. When Jesus was crucified, he was mocked put a crown of thorns and they mocked him, put a sign up over the cross, king of the Jews, they mocked him. We know that persecuted Christians are often mocked or God is often mocked in front of them as they're being beaten. 
Friends, we know that God continues to be mocked today as people openly defy him. In fact, you can go to YouTube and see where people in a video openly mock God. They, they, they say that they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And so they will openly deny the Holy Spirit there, even though they really don't know what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is. They think they're doing it and they seek to openly deny God. People do it often. But friends, as he does here in Belshazzar's day, God will always have the last word. Pick up back in verse five as we see God respond. So as they're drinking it up with the vessels from Jerusalem, the temple, we see in verse five, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. The king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. And all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. I can only imagine the nature of the situation, how awkward it must have suddenly became, this, this awkward silence as they're, they're, they're drinking it up, they're having this party, they're, they're drinking their wine, they're, they're doing what they do in Babylon at a party. And all of a sudden, in the midst of the darkness, a hand appears and begins writing on a wall. Now, remember back in Nebuchadnezzar's time, he didn't see hands writing on the wall, but he had dreams. And every time he had a bad dream and was troubled or frightened by the dream, he would call upon his, his enchanters, the, the wise people of the day, so to speak, to come and help him understand the interpretation. And, and not one time, at least in the biblical record here, the couple of times that we see these dreams recorded, were they able to do it. And so ultimately, Daniel was called upon. Well, we find Belshazzar here in a very similar state. He's frightened, he's troubled. The text says that even his limbs gave away and his knees knocked together. This man was scared. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, he sought the wise men to help him understand the writing, but to no avail. But in verse 10, the queen or the queen mother comes to the scene, comes to the party, and she says, don't you remember Daniel? Remember back in Nebuchadnezzar's day, Daniel was always able to bring interpretation to his dreams. Surely Daniel can help us here. That's exactly what happens in verses 13 through 16. Daniel is called upon, he's brought to the king, asked to give the interpretation of the dream. But notice this is all happening in the context of King Belshazzar opening, openly defying God, mocking him, and God responding. A second thing that we also see concerning King Belshazzar and his, his unbridled defiance is he disregards the power of God. 
He disregards the power of God. Before Daniel gets to the interpretation, he first sets up the context. Daniel's have, he's got several years of experience under his belt now, doesn't he? So Daniel just doesn't come in and begin to immediately give interpretation. He, he wants there to be context for this. Notice what we read in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to, know, to another. The king had promised him, Daniel, if you could give the interpretation, or he had promised anyone, I'll give you a gold chain, I'll make you third in charge in the kingdom. And Daniel says, you know what, verse 17, keep your gifts. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar. He takes him on a history lesson here. The most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all people's nations' languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was that of the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox in his body, wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Verse 22 and 23 are critical. And you, his son, Likely an ancestor, he's not likely a direct son of Nebuchadnezzar. There's been several in between. Oftentimes the scripture will use son as a reference to someone within the lineage. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. If you like to underline in your Bibles, though you knew all this is a good one to underline. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone which do not see or hear or know but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Belshazzar's problem was not ignorance. His problem was rejection, defiance, complete disregard for the power of God. He knew, surely, I mean, the the story of Nebuchadnezzar was certainly still widely known. And Daniel's making the point, you remember Nebuchadnezzar. He was kind of like you, proud, arrogant, and God humbled him. Don't you remember that, Belshazzar? You've not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You're completely, you're completely disregarding history. Here, here's a biblical plug for the importance of history. Right? If you think I'm not a history guy, you're not a Bible person. Ha! Take that. History's critical. He's not learned the lesson from a historical example of what took place with Nebuchadnezzar and now he's disregarding God. He's not humbling his heart before God. He had been made aware of just how powerful God was and still refused to humble himself. Even the fact that he had to be reminded about the past 
from Daniel shows just how much he carelessly threw away the facts. Can't help but notice the contrast from Nebuchadnezzar's testimony to Belshazzar's arrogance from verse 37 of chapter 4 to verse 1 of chapter 5. Those who walk in pride, Nebuchadnezzar concluded, he is able to humble. Then chapter 1 or chapter 5 verse 1, King Belshazzar made a great feast, drank wine, and continues there with what's going on at the current situation. He disregarded the power of God, but he also, number three, ignored the word of God. Look at verses 24 through 29. Here is now Daniel describing what the king or what the king saw on the wall, and he's going to give him the interpretation. Verse 24, then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, the, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. We know that earlier when Belshazzar had first seen the writing on the wall, his color changed. It means he, he was frightened. Literally, his joints came unhinged. He didn't know what to think. Same thing happened when his wise men came and couldn't interpret. Now Daniel arrives on the scene and he's not only able to give the interpretation, but he explains what the, what, what the words are. He gives the interpretation of the words and what does Belshazzar do? Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was closed with purple, chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. According to verse 29, he rewards Daniel, as he said, even though Daniel wanted nothing to do with it. And he seems to just carry on as usual. He now had the words explained to him and the interpretation given to him directly from God through Daniel, and he makes no change. Do you see what's going on here? Not only does he have historical record of what God did with Nebuchadnezzar, he has a direct revelation from God himself and he refuses to heed God's word. Friends, I think this is an important thing to observe. How easy it is for us to hear God's word and refused to respond. Having good information is important, but it does not guarantee change. Again, his problem was not ignorance. He had a historical example and now a direct revelation. He had been given everything he needed to make a change. He had been educated. He had been given resources. He had been given understanding, and yet he doesn't change. Many times people will respond to certain situations claiming that folk, they, folks, they just need educating. Education's important. Information's important. People will conclude, if we can just get the right information before people, that'll certainly change how they live. 
Does that really? If we're only depending upon information and education, does that really change things? And does that change the fact that those who smoke three packs a day with the Surgeon General's warning, does that change things? Does dietary instruction on food containers change always the way we eat? I mean, I know I intentionally eat things that are not good for me. And even though it's right there in front of me, I've got the information, I've been educated, but yet I'm still giving in to those things. Does an article on debt reduction keep people from charging more to their visa? Education and information in and of itself cannot bring transformation. Information is important. Revelation, I would say, is even necessary, but without the work of God's spirit and hearts receiving the truth in humility, information alone cannot change someone. So what you do with the information by the Holy Spirit is what matters. And the heart needs to be changed because our most basic nature is that we are all defiant against God. It's not just Belshazzar's problem, it's our problem. It is our problem. It might be more apparent in some versus others, but it's the reality of all of our fallen hearts. We all have an unbridled defiance. Let's look at number two, it ties right in together, an an unavoidable justice. Once Belshazzar openly defines and mocks God, the handwriting was on the wall, right? Pun intended. God responds to his unrepentant pride and he brings swift judgment upon him. And the response that God gives is that one king, your days of ruling are over, you've been weighed and found wanting and your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then in verse 30 and 31, the Lord declares Belshazzar's downfall right there in front of everyone. He brings it to pass. That night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Here's the sad truth. Even though we see the demise of this arrogant, unrepentant king. If we're honest, many of us here would have still loved to been on the king's invitation list to his banquet. Because from a distance, Belshazzar's feast looks so amazing and so fulfilling. And indeed, in a very symbolic way, Belshazzar's feast is set before us every day and many of us are fooled into thinking that this feast is the way to be successful. But listen, as did for King Belshazzar, God's justice will come down like a hammer. Don't be weighed in the balance and found wanting is the warning here. When you and I stand in the presence of God, there will be nothing for which we would boast about. Friends, there's one thing each of us can be certain. God will always have the final word. He will have the final say. 
Belshazzar was able to persist in his defiance, even in light of what he had already known and what had now been revealed to him. Friends, don't, don't go that way. Right now, you're sitting in this congregation and you're hearing not the words of a man, not, not from me. You're hearing from the scripture as we're looking to this together, as we're trying to hear from God in his word together. You're hearing instruction. You're, you're, you're being educated, so to speak. You're receiving information. And what you do with that, how you respond to that is what's going to matter. You can just let it kind of go through your ears like water flows through a pipe. Or you can receive it, respond to it, be changed. But yet many folks today, perhaps even some in this room, continue to eat, drink, and be merry while deliberately ignoring the clear power of God and the clear word of God. Friend, is that you? Just doing your thing, living it up, doing your thing. You've seen historically what God has done in the past. You've heard presently what God has revealed in his word instruction that he's given, the clarity that, through which he's given it, and you continue to defy him, you continue to persist in your sin. Friends, just know this. God will have the final say. And God is very patient. But he will bring justice. Friends, just know this. If you want to eat, drink, and be merry. Don't do it in Belshazzar's court. There is a banquet that the Lord is preparing and inviting you to where I will guarantee you that the food and the wine is infinitely better. If you find yourself here today and you find yourself confronted as as a sinner, that's what we all are. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all been defiant in our own ways, but the promise of God, the promise of God is that he loved defiant sinners. He loves rebellious people. He loves you and me. So much so that he was willing to send his only son into the world to live the life that each of us should have lived but don't, and yet die a death we all deserve. And friend, the hope for you is that if you will stop in your tracks, stop in your own defiance, and you will place your faith and hope in Christ, your sins will be forgiven, you will be adopted into the family of God, and you will have hope for eternity. And you will go and receive the blessings of God. You'll go to a banquet that that you'll never even begin to fathom the depths of. That is hope for you, friend. There's an unavoidable justice coming. And Jesus died upon the cross to take upon himself that justice, that righteous anger of God against sin. God poured that out upon the shoulders of Christ as he died on the cross so that whoever would trust in him would be forgiven of their sins and welcomed into the family of God forever. Friend, if you've never trusted in Christ, you've never sought to seek Christ by faith, look to him today and find salvation. And if you don't know what that means and how to get there, we would love to talk with you to have a conversation about what that looks like. We will walk alongside of you, understanding, helping you understand the gospel. But there is an unavoidable justice coming. Number three and number four, we'll get to these quickly. 
There's also an unnoticed faithfulness in this passage. An unbridled defiance, an unavoidable justice, but then third, there's an unnoticed faithfulness. When you read this story, one thing stands out, especially having followed Daniel through the earlier chapters. Daniel now has come to the aid of two kings, Nebuchadnezzar and now Belshazzar, and he seems to continually be overlooked and ignored. You had thought that Nebuchadnezzar would have got it straight the first time. He had two dreams. Both times he calls upon his guys, not Daniel. Daniel's the last, the last, the last option, right? You've probably heard me say this before. A lot of times people come to me for counseling. Pastor, I've tried everything else. Might as well try you. Oh, thanks. It's encouraging. I've had people say that. I, they don't probably mean that, but it's what I've heard people say. Um, so that's probably how Daniel felt. Well, yeah. Belshazzar, the same. Each time Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar were confronted with something from God, whether a dream or the handwriting on the wall, they immediately call for someone else except Daniel. It seems as if Daniel is going unnoticed and unappreciated. And for, this could be for many reasons, but obviously he was an Israelite in a pagan land under, in captivity. Yeah, the Lord had blessed him and allowed him to take role in government and leadership. But again, he doesn't seem to be valued or appreciated from the Babylonian perspective. But one of the things that we see highlighted time again throughout the book of Daniel is that Daniel is a man of humility and faithfulness. Even in verse 17, we see that Daniel was not out to make a name for himself. Daniel said to the king, let your gifts be for you. I don't need your rewards, king. I'll tell you what you want, but I don't need your gold. I don't need to be third in the kingdom or a purple robe. Friends, Daniel didn't want earthly rewards or human recognition. He simply strove to be faithful, honest, committed to the calling that God had given him. He's just a humble man that was carrying on in the Lord. And God used him. And while I don't necessarily think it's the, the main overarching point of this passage, I do think it's a helpful thing for us to stop and consider. And you may be in, the, in a place where you're striving to be faithful to the Lord, but it seems to be largely unnoticed. You're trying to be faithful to, faithful to the Lord, and it seems that your family doesn't get it. Your spouse doesn't get it. Your kids don't get it. Or maybe your, your friends, they just don't seem to get it. You just want to be faithful. You don't, it's like falling on deaf ears around you. Everyone around you at school, work, even at home, seem to don't understand. Friend, let me just encourage you to persevere in faithfulness regardless of what you think others might be seeing. There was a queen in Babylon that had apparently seen Daniel from a distance. He caught someone's eye. I guarantee you, in your persistent faithfulness and humility and commitment to the Lord, you're not doing it to make your name great, you're doing it to make his name great. And as you seek to be faithful, it doesn't matter who you think sees you or doesn't see you, or it doesn't matter what people want to, to contribute to, to recognizing your faithfulness. It's not about us, it's about the glory of God. Just continue on, continue on humbly carrying on in the Lord, and he will reward you. 
He rewards you because he does take note. God sees everything you do and he takes note of it. And that, friend, is all that matters. Number four, we see an unhindered confidence. I'm gonna end where I began. The events that unfold here of God humbling to the point of death at this point, another king and giving the kingdom over to another is just yet another reminder to the people of God, certainly the Israelites who were captive in exile, that God is the most high God and he can bring down even the mightiest king and kingdom on earth. No one can go against this God and win. Think about the encouragement that would have been to you, friend, if you would have been a captive in Babylon. God just took down another king. God did that. The God who who has made covenant with me, the God who has given us the land and now is disciplining us because of our own stupidity and our own sin, God just did that. And I'm his. That should encourage you. That should give you hope. That should give you confidence. Nebuchadnezzar's humility and Belshazzar's swift execution remind us that no amount of power, wealth, extravagance, anything, anything in the world can stop the mighty hand of God. Nothing. Nothing. Friend, it might be a struggle to understand that today. We live in a world that has fallen. We live in a world that causes us so much alarm But friend, there is no ruler, no governor, no king, no president, no terrorist organization, nothing that can stop the plans of God from unfolding. Nothing can stop his kingdom from advancing. God's kingdom will not fail. God's rule will prevail. They ought to make a song that says that. He's he's sovereign. It doesn't matter what you might be experiencing. It does matter because you're in the present. You've got to deal with that. And so there's other passages of the Bible will go to to find strength and this is one of them to remember even from a distance that God is faithful and that God can be trusted I love a quote from Charles Spurgeon the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the Christian rests his head Amen. amen sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the Christian rests his head friends we have nothing to fear Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And if your hope and your faith is in Christ, doesn't matter anything that comes your way, you can trust God because he will get you home. Friends, Daniel 5 gives us so much to consider, but I would sum it up this way. Instead of ignoring God, It is to your eternal benefit to trust him. When we defy him, there will be unavoidable justice. But when we trust and follow him, even when it largely goes unnoticed, you can have the confidence you need to face your time here in our own Babylon, knowing that it doesn't stand a chance against the sovereign hand of God. It's true 
The handwriting is on the wall, but better yet, it's in the book. God has spoken. Will we defy and ignore it? Or will we embrace by faith the promise that God has given? Isaiah 2 verse 12 tells us, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. Friend, don't be frowned among them that day. Hear the promise and word of God. Respond to him in faith and trust him and be counted among those whom he has redeemed that day. And all will be well for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for caring for us. Thank you, Father, for giving us a rock to stand upon, a foundation that's firm, a hope that's lasting, a redemption that's secure. Because, Lord, the winds and the waves of this world are rough. There's much that alarms us, Father. There's much that shakes us and concerns us, but Lord, when we understand that it is you who can be trusted, Father, would you help us to do that? Father, I know that you're telling us that we're to trust you. Even when we don't have it all figured out and even when the, the, the situation is, is difficult to understand, You're telling us to trust you because of your own character, because of your own faithfulness. Father, it may be that we're here today and Lord, we found it difficult lately to trust you. We we might find it a struggle even now to trust you. We look around at the things going on in this world and we just say, how Lord, how can we we get it through? Father, you've given us a sure and certain word God, would you help our stubborn hearts not to be stubborn? Would you help our temptation to be defiant against you? Lord, would you, would you take that from us? Would you give us humble hearts that would respond to you in faith and would walk in faithfulness, knowing that you are good and you can be trusted? Father, would you have your way now in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.